Former President Trump plans to surrender himself to Georgia authorities Thursday on charges tied to efforts to overturn the 2020 election. It's Tuesday, August 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden is promising federal support for Maui wildfire victims as the search continues for more than 850 missing people. Also, the Food and Drug Administration has approved a vaccine against RSV that protects newborn babies. Regardless of pre-existing condition, we have kids get admitted to the hospital with RSV disease and some die who are otherwise completely healthy. And this hour, voters in Zimbabwe prepare to go to the polls tomorrow despite instances of voter intimidation and violence in the country. In sports, Red Sox lose sunny in upper 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Officials on the Hawaiian island of Maui have released two more names of victims from the historic blaze there two weeks ago. The death toll stands at 115 up one from yesterday. 35 victims have been identified. At the same time, more than 800 people on Maui remain unaccounted for. The question is, did they perish or have they not checked in with family or friends? President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden toured the wildfire devastation on Maui yesterday, later pledging sustained federal support at a community event at the Lahaina Civic Center. Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono says the loss is profound, especially considering the modest local government coffers on Maui. It is going to be a lot of money, and this county has suffered a, uh, tremendous losses because their county budget doesn't cover anything of this magnitude. The blaze on Maui was the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. Recovery efforts are underway in Southern California in the aftermath of flash floods and mudslides brought on by Tropical Storm Hillary. From member station KVCR, Madison Almond reports. The resort town of Palm Springs and surrounding desert cities east of Los Angeles receives some three inches of rain. The area typically sees roughly five inches a year. Shane Reichardt is a spokesman for Riverside County that includes Palm Springs. He says now that the sun is out, the county is assessing the damage. We're such a large county with 7,300 square miles that... Uh, there's a lot of area to check. He says flooding is still blocking roads in Palm Springs, and the storm knocked out the 911 emergency call system there on Sunday night. Emergency officials also have their eye on debris flows in areas where wildfires burned recently. For NPR News, I'm Madison Ament in San Bernardino. The FDA has approved the first RSV vaccine to be taken during pregnancy. The shot will protect newborn babies during their vulnerable first months of life. NPR's Sydney Lepkin has details. The FDA has approved a new tool in the arsenal against RSV. The virus causes mild cold-like symptoms in most people, but can be serious in young children and older adults. Pfizer studied the vaccine in more than 7,000 pregnant women across 18 countries. The vaccine was 82% effective at preventing severe disease in infants during their first three months of life and 70% effective in the first six months. Dr. Scott Roberts from the Yale School of Medicine says it's good news. I think a lot of us in the medical community are facing the winter ahead with some optimism and enthusiasm that we now have several options that are coming down the pipeline. Last month, the FDA also approved a monoclonal antibody shot for babies up to 24 months old. It's made by AstraZeneca. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. Dow Futures up 75. This is NPR. 
Taiwan's government wants to increase the island's defense budget next year by three and a half percent. Taiwan's president calls it a demonstration of determination to ensure national security. NPR's John Ruwich reports it comes at a time of growing pressure from China. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen says defense spending is expected to reach 2.5 percent of GDP next year. That's about $19 billion. Tsai says Taiwan needs to continue to bolster its ability to defend itself and seek more international support. China's ruling Communist Party considers the self-ruled democracy a part of China and hopes to unify it politically with the mainland. In recent years, Beijing has ramped up pressure with military operations and saber-rattling around the island. The proposed defense budget would be the biggest in Taiwan's history, but it's a fraction of the more than $200 billion China expects to spend on defense this year. John Ruich, NPR News. The National Hurricane Center says a tropical depression in the Gulf of Mexico has strengthened into Tropical Storm Harold and is expected to strengthen further before it reaches the Texas coast. It's currently located about 155 miles east-southeast of Port Mansfield, Texas, with maximum sustained winds of 45 miles an hour. Tropical Storm Franklin, meanwhile, is turning about 255 miles south of the Dominican Republic with maximum sustained winds of 50 miles an hour. Major wildfires are burning out of control in northeastern Greece and on Tenerife in Spain's Canary Island. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Maura Healey is seeking more federal aid to ease travel congestion on Massachusetts roads and highways. Healey is asking for more than $2 billion in federal grants for several major projects around the state. They include plans to replace the Cape Cod bridges, reconstruction of Route 9 in Williamsburg, and the renovation of Boston's North Station. As we approach the end of August, the greater Boston area, many leases across the greater Boston area are coming to an end and tenants are getting ready for moving day. WBUR's Dave Paniff reports on efforts by the city to make sure the September 1st move-in goes smoothly. Jessica Thomas is with Boston's Inspectional Services. She says students should call the city's emergency helpline, 311, if they find their landlord is not responding to any problems. Issues that Thomas says can be anything from smoke detectors to rodents. We do, you know, interior housing inspections and we'll issue violations if deficiencies are found under the rental unit delivery standards. And then building inspectors can also inspect the structural integrity of buildings, including porches, balconies, and foundations. Because of a new state law, Thomas is reminding people if they want to get rid of an old mattress, they cannot leave it on the curb. They need to make an appointment with the city to have it taken away. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Worcester school officials want to create a group that would bring together LGBTQ plus students and their families. They're considering forming an affinity group to help educators meet the needs of students. School leaders tell the Telegram and Gazette the group could work with student-led LGBTQ plus groups in the district. The proposal follows a new set of rules by the Diocese of Worcester limiting LGBTQ plus expression in Catholic schools. The New England Produce Council's Expo at Encore Boston Harbor is wrapping up today. The annual event showcases products to restaurants and other businesses in the area. Tim Cavaretta is the interim director of operations of Food for Free. He says when the expo is over, his organization will rescue almost 10,000 pounds of fresh produce for the hungry. 
it's similar to how uh, produce might be kept at room temperature in a supermarket. It'll still be good for uh, n- another several days. We'll be distributing the lion's share of it within 24 hours of when we pick it up. Cabaretta says they'll use two box trucks to bring the food back to their distribution center in Somerville. It'll then go to food pantries throughout the region. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. The Red Sox are coming off a five-run loss to the Astros. The final score last night in Houston was 9-4. to The teams will play again tonight at 8. Skies gradually clear this morning and we'll have a sunny day with highs in the upper 70s. Tonight mostly clear with temperatures dipping into the 50s. Tomorrow sunny and in the upper 70s again. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Republican voters in Iowa. First, though, the migrants came a long way from Ethiopia. They fled armed conflict, human rights abuses, and economic pain. They traveled through the Horn of Africa, over the Gulf to Yemen, and into the rugged mountains at the border of Saudi Arabia. Some were seeking political asylum or just a better life. Then... According to a report from Human Rights Watch, Saudi border guards killed hundreds of them using guns and explosive weapons in a pattern that was, quote, widespread and systematic. We're going to talk about it with Nadia Hardman. She's a researcher with Human Rights Watch and lead author of the report. Uh, Nadia, who did you speak to and what stories did they tell you about what happened? Hi, thank you for having me on the program. Um, I interviewed 42 Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers who tried to cross the border between March 2022 and June 2023 um, and all told me just devastating stories of how, I mean, they already experienced a brutal, abusive journey from the Horn of Africa through Yemen. And then when they reached the border and tried to cross, sometimes in large groups, sometimes in smaller groups, they were um, attacked by Saudi border guards using explosive weapons. What they said um, were mortars um, thrown at them from the back of vehicles, rocket launchers, um, or shot at at close range. Um, Their stories are, are, as I said, just horrifying. I mean, one 14-year-old girl who survived an explosive weapons attack told me uh, that she woke up after she passed out and um, she thought people were sleeping around her, but they were in fact dead bodies. Another boy, 17-year-old boy, who also survived an explosive weapons attack, um, was then approached by Saudi border guards and forced to rape the, the other girl survivors. Um, he said he did it because uh, one man who refused was summarily executed. So we're talking some really awful, awful stuff. Uh, how do how did you confirm um, what they told you? 
Yeah. I mean, apart from, you know, just the consistency of the evidence of the people that, you know, were telling me basically the same story one after the other, we launched a massive digital investigation. Um, you know, we can't access this area. No one can. It's a it's a remote mountainous border region, um, you know, between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. No one can go. Um, and so what we did was analyze just kilometers of satellite imagery. Um, and then also uh, we, we got a hold of a lot of open source footage. Um, we looked at over 350 videos and photographs, um, including ones that were sent directly to me to really visually build um, a story, uh, you know, to corroborate the findings. And, you know, what we, I think, have shown is that Saudi border guards knew or should have known they were firing on unarmed Ethiopians. Um, you know, we were able to plot exactly where Saudi border guard posts are all along that border. We found burial sites that have um, increased in size during the, the period of research. Um, and we've found videos that we've geolocated and verified of dead and wounded migrants along the route. And then just finally, we sent our photographs that, you know, victims sent to me that that show just horrifying injuries to forensic experts externally who confirmed that they show yeah. that they are consistent with blast trauma. And we reached out to the Saudi foreign ministry for comment yesterday. We have not received a response yet. Um, has the Saudi government responded to your report? Um, you know, the Saudi authorities had a long uh, sort of lead time to respond to us. We, we sent them uh, a letter and lots of questions, um, you know, about three weeks ago, maybe more. And we didn't hear anything. What I did see yesterday um, were a few responses um, in relation to journalists who'd also, you know, asked for a comment. Um, and it was either it varied from a denial, um, you know, to, to uh, saying that our report was baseless. Um, but we've not had any engagement with, with the Saudi authorities on this. We would, of course, welcome it. But, you know, I should also say that we're not the any organization that's put this on record. The UN, uh, in the form of its special procedures, put out um, a letter that they sent to the Saudis last year in October, you know, alleging much of the same stuff, um, you know, widespread and systematic attacks. And, you know, we are saying that this may amount to a crime against humanity. Nadia Hardman of Human Rights Watch. She joined us via Skype. Nadia, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Republican presidential candidates will square off tomorrow night in Milwaukee at the GOP's first presidential debate. Last night, the RNC announced the eight participants. It's a range of names, some well-known, like Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence, some less familiar, like South Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. And you've probably heard by now that the biggest name in the race, Trump, won't be there. It can be hard to campaign as a Republican when your name isn't Trump. NPR's Don Gagne heard why that is firsthand when he spoke with voters at recent candidate events. He found that among Republicans, there's a reluctance to criticize Trump, even while making the case to replace him. GOP presidential hopeful Tim Scott can be seen as a prime example of why challengers to Donald Trump aren't getting much traction. At the Iowa State Fair, the South Carolina senator held a brief Q&A with reporters who wanted his reaction to the latest criminal indictment of the frontrunner. Scott's response could have been scripted by the Trump campaign. We see the legal system being weaponized against political opponents that is un-American and unacceptable. And at the end of the day, uh, we need a better system than that. And I frankly hope to be the President of the United States where we have an opportunity to restore confidence and integrity in all of our departments of justice. 
similar answers have come from the vast majority of GOP hopefuls, with just a few exceptions. There's former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, whose entire campaign has been about calling Trump unfit. Christie, however, isn't even bothering to compete in Iowa. That leaves former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson as one of the few candidates willing to speak out against Trump in the state. I said a year ago that uh, Donald Trump is disqualified from being president of the United States as a result of his actions. He's morally responsible. Now we'll see if he's criminally responsible. That's a question for the law and for the jury. But even now, with four Trump indictments, a new Iowa poll from the Des Moines Register, NBC News, and Mediacom has Trump still leading significantly. Challenger Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, is more than 20 points behind. Tim Scott is in third with less than 10 percent. Asa Hutchinson, meanwhile, is among a group of candidates, each polling at zero in Iowa. Still, Trump does fall well below 50 percent of the vote, a fact that may, may leave an opening for another candidate. And voters who are looking for just that are actually not that hard to find. Take 51-year-old Ardeen Schill of Marion, Iowa. He's a conservative who voted for Trump in the past two elections. This time? I think it's time for a change. Okay, explain. It's time to um, bring the country back together. And I don't think he's the individual that can bring this country back together. His wife Katie Schill agrees, but makes it clear she's not condemning Trump, even as she looks for a new candidate. Same question to you. You, you voted for Trump? I but, did. But you're not there now. No, no. Um, he's, he's not someone that can bring everybody back together. And not only that, there's, there's too many attacks on him. He, he can't focus on what he needs to do. Both say they like Trump's policies as president, but they're still making up their mind regarding the Republican field. Next stop on the campaign trail is tomorrow night in Milwaukee, the first debate. And Trump says he's skipping the event. Instead, he's doing an interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson via social media. Still, look for much of the debate to focus on Trump, even in his absence. Don Gagne, NPR News. Shakari Richardson has raced into history. The 23-year-old American sprinter won the women's 100 meters yesterday at the Track and Field World Championships in Budapest, setting an event record with a time of 10.65 seconds. Women's 100 World Final. The Jamaicans get out well. It's Sharika Jackson, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, Talu. Here comes Shakari Richardson. Shakari's done it. Shakari Richardson has won the world title. Now, while the late Florence Griffith Joyner set the world record 35 years ago, you can hear the excitement in the NBC Sports commentator's voice as Richardson's run is the fifth fastest of all time. Her big win comes two years after she first became a star at the U.S. Olympic trials, only to be forced to skip the 2021 games in Tokyo after testing positive for marijuana. Last month, just before regaining the national title stripped from her for her doping violation, Richardson ripped off her iconic orange wig and tossed it. She later explained why in this interview with Tiara Williams posted on Instagram. And I wanted to show you guys that 
I'm still that girl, but I'm better. I'm still that girl, but I'm stronger. Mm -hmm. I'm still that girl, but I'm wiser. So I had to shed the old and present the new. Shakari Richardson now has another chance to compete in the Olympics and apparently feels pretty good about her chances. In a recent post on Instagram Stories, she wrote, Paris 2024, history will be made. So, A, can yeah. you, uh, are you, are you a runner? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a runner, not like she's a runner, but I can plod along. I actually ran a mile in six, uh, six minutes and 38 seconds last week. But did you wear an orange wig? I should have, though. It would have made me faster, <laughs> right? I think it probably would have helped. More well, it's great aerodynamic. To, great to see her back in the mix, though. Yeah. I mean, after, after, you know, what a, such a high and such a low, and can't wait to see what she does next. Super entertaining performer. This... Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the FDA yesterday approved the first vaccine meant to be given during pregnancy, so from the moment of birth, newborns will be protected from the leading cause of hospitalizations among infants. It's 721. A hotter planet means an increased risk of intense wildfires. In some states, National Guard troops help combat those fires. In 2021, the National Guard spent 172,000 personnel days fighting fires, compared to about 18,000 in 2019. I'm Elsa Chang. How the National Guard is dealing with the evolving threat of climate change on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Sunny today with a high near 77. It could get a bit windy. Tonight, skies stay clear and temperatures fall to lows around 60. Tomorrow, sunny again with a high near 75. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Native plants aren't just good for birds and bees. They also make the land more resilient to the effects of climate change and can even help prevent it. But cities and homeowners associations don't always like the way they look, putting them at odds with residents who want to grow native plants in their yards. However, some cities and homeowners associations are working with homeowners to encourage these plants. Here's Rebecca Thiel with Indiana Public Broadcasting. Aja Yasir's yard in Gary, Indiana is full of flowers, food, and medicines. Many of these plants are indigenous. She picks some herbs and nettles in the yard to feed to her ducks. Yasir and her husband bought this once vacant lot in 2016, just a few months after her youngest daughter passed away. 
Before they even moved in with their two kids, Yasir would travel to and from Illinois every day, building up the sandy soil with leaves, cardboard, compost, and wood chips. That was the only way I can get through it. And so it's been like an asylum for me. It's been an emotional release. It's also been a way to feed my family. It's been a lot for us. But not everybody liked the look of Yasir's yard. She got a citation from the city in 2017 and another the following year. After a year-long court battle, the last one was finally dropped. It's been exhausting. The whole thing has been absolutely exhausting. Yasir isn't alone. Homeowners with native gardens from Florida and Maryland to Missouri and Kentucky have gotten slapped with fines or even had their yards mowed without permission. The reason? Taller native plants can get mistaken for weeds. Many cities don't allow weeds to grow above a certain height, and they don't have the time or staff to find out what's what. But native plants have a lot of benefits for the planet. For one, they keep the land cooler. Indiana University biology professor Heather Reynolds says they use heat from their environment to pull water up from the soil and out their leaves. It's a process that actually removes energy from the system, thus cooling the air. It's the exact same principle as sweating. Native plants also do more to prevent flooding than a lawn. They have longer roots, which keep the soil in place and help it absorb more water. Those roots also trap more carbon dioxide, too. Then there's all of those high-maintenance things you need for a lawn that you don't need for native plants. They require little, if any, fertilizer, pesticides, irrigation, and of course they aren't going to require mowing. All of these inputs generate greenhouse gas emissions. Because of these benefits and others, some cities have started to work with homeowners to encourage native plants. This one is an example of a yard that's actually in compliance, yet we get a lot of complaints about it. That's Linda Thompson, a senior environmental planner for the city of Bloomington, Indiana. If the city gets a complaint about weeds, but the homeowner says they're native plants, it's Thompson's job to go find out. She says she can identify a lot of plants already, but when she's stumped, she uses an app. Looks like it is a Chinese clematis, so I'll have to go back to the office and look that up. Bloomington changed its ordinance to define a weed as an invasive plant, a plant that can spread out of control and prevent other plants from growing. Thompson says homeowners in Bloomington can plant almost anything they want in their yards, as long as it's not invasive and doesn't block traffic sight lines or sidewalks. I searched all over the place for a definition for weed, and there isn't one except a plant that's growing somewhere where you don't want it to grow. It's all a matter of aesthetics, and the city does not enforce aesthetics. But even if your local government allows it, your homeowners association might not. Homeowners that want to plant natives may have to negotiate with their HOA or even join the board to change the rules. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Thiel in Bloomington, Indiana. Bats have been in decline across the country for years. Habitat loss and disease are among the reasons. But for scientists to better understand these threats, they have to track an animal that flies around mostly at night and it's hard to see and hear. So they're getting help from special technology and a lot of volunteers. Nikolai Mather with member station WHQR in Wilmington, North Carolina, recently went on a midnight quest to see how it's done. It's a balmy summer night. I'm on a country road on the border of North and South Carolina with Jen Gore and Jen Huffam. They have their hazard lights on and they're taking me for a very slow drive. Why do we have to go 20 miles per hour? For it to pick up, I, I assume. If we're going faster, maybe the wind will be too much. Oh, see. Have a great day. <laughs> going this slow on a two-lane road means you'll hear a lot of angry honks. 
but Gore and Huffam have to drive slow in order to collect bat calls. They're volunteers for the North American Bat Monitoring Program, or NABAT for short. Gore and Huffam taped a special microphone to the roof of their Toyota. That way, they can figure out which bats are flying overhead. Eastern red bat. Yeah, we're going to get some more through here. They pick up their first sound. Bats use high-pitched noises to hunt. It's called echolocation. The sound bounces off of obstacles in their path, which allows them to kind of see in the dark. The noises are too high for humans to hear, which is why our volunteers use the microphone. The sound waves show up on an iPad that Huffam is holding. It's connected to the microphone. A special app can identify the species. Oh, Southeastern myotis. Oh, we didn't get that one before. Already two bats in the can for these volunteers. And there are 17 species in North Carolina. We can also use technology to make the bat calls audible for the human ear. It sounds a little weird, but here it is. Every summer, thousands of citizen scientists across North America go on these excursions. They collect these bat calls in the field to share with researchers. How visible is the moon? It was like halfway visible before, wasn't it? Yeah. Huffam is checking the weather conditions. Volunteers have to record the temperature, the cloud coverage, and other environmental data for each run. It was like cloudy, but not covering it really. We reach the end of the route. Gore turns off her hazard lights and drives us back to the gas station where we met. Every volunteer in every region follows the exact same procedure. Scientists need standardized data for their analyses to be accurate. They take their job seriously, Huffam tells me, because they know this work matters. The data we collect helps us to look at what species are doing well, what species need our help, and what ecosystems are good for not just bats, but other wildlife as well. And in just half an hour, we recorded 11 different bat species. For NPR News, I'm Nikolai Mayfair in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition. We hear about a Philadelphia suburb that's considering local gun restrictions because of a lack of movement on laws at the national level. It's 730. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Officials in Hawaii say more than 800 people are still unaccounted for on Maui, two weeks after deadly wildfires swept across the island. The official death toll stands at 115. Phil Huddleston is a bartender in Lahaina who escaped the flames, only to discover later his house and workplace were destroyed. He says the first days on Maui after the fires were tough. There's no place to buy anything. Everything's closed. There's no power anywhere. President Biden surveyed some of the destruction on Maui yesterday and promised the federal government would work as long as it takes to help the state recover. The National Weather Service says heavy rains from the remnants of Tropical Storm Hillary could cause flooding today in parts of the western U.S., including sections of Arizona and Nevada. NPR's Rebecca Hersher says climate change is playing a role in the summer's hurricanes and wildfires. When the ocean is abnormally hot at the surface, it helps hurricanes grow. We are seeing that right now in both the Pacific, where Hurricane Hillary formed, and in the Atlantic, where there are multiple potential storms right now. The same is true for wildfires. Wildfires are an important part of healthy 
forest ecosystems, but drought and heat can make them burn more widely, make them burn more intensely than in the past. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. North Andover officials say the town sustained nearly $30 million in damage after torrential rains swept through the Merrimack Valley earlier this month. Town officials estimate the rain damaged more than 50 businesses. Many of those are still unable to reopen. More than 300 homes were also damaged, as were several municipal buildings, including schools. Officials will use the new estimates in their effort to seek a federal disaster declaration. A New Hampshire sheriff is taking a leave of absence amid accusations he misused public funds for personal use. Stratford County Sheriff Mark Brave was arrested last week on charges he stole nearly $19,000 in county funds. Investigators also say he lied under oath. Brave is the state's only black sheriff. He denies the allegations. In an interview with the Boston Globe, he called the allegations politically motivated. 3,000 students will get free back-to-school supplies at TD Garden today. It's part of a joint effort with the Salvation Army and the city of Boston. They're handing out supplies, including backpacks, clothing, and hygiene products. Salvation Army Massachusetts leader Major Scott Kelly says the giveaway is a huge confidence boost for students. Getting all the supplies they need for their kids to go back to school could be as much as $850, and most of the families that we deal with you know, that's not a possibility for them. So having at least this basis of supplies provided for them is just to help to get them headed in the right direction. People interested in attending can sign up on the Salvation Army of Massachusetts's website. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Red Sox started their four-game series in Houston with a loss. The team fell to the Astros last night 9-4. to The Sox will try to turn things around in Game 2 tonight. That starts at 8. Highs in the upper 70s today under clear skies. Tonight still clear and it falls to lows around 60. Tomorrow highs in the mid-70s and sunny again. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The Food and Drug Administration has approved a vaccine against RSV that protects newborn babies. The shot is made by Pfizer and is given during pregnancy, as NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lepkin reports. RSV causes mild, cold-like symptoms in most people but can be dangerous in young children and older adults. Each year in the U.S., up to 80,000 children under 5 are hospitalized with RSV and up to 300 of them die. Here's Dr. Scott Roberts from Yale School of Medicine. RSV has plagued the infant population of 
not just the United States, but the world for years. And there have been attempts at developing both vaccines and therapeutics against RSV that have failed for decades. He says RSV is scary because it even hits healthy infants hard, blocking their tiny airways. The vaccine will be given to expectant mothers between the 32nd and 36th weeks of pregnancy. That immunity will then get passed on to their newborns through the placenta. Pfizer studied the vaccine in more than 7,000 pregnant women across 18 countries. The vaccine was 82% effective at preventing severe disease in infants during their first three months of life and 70% effective in the first six months. Dr. Eric Simos at Children's Hospital Colorado worked with Pfizer and has been working on RSV prevention for decades. My only hope is that we can get these vaccines, not only in the U.S., but also to children in developing countries that need it the most. The FDA originally approved the vaccine in May for adults over 60. It's already available for the upcoming RSV season. Pfizer says it has been manufacturing the shot ahead of approval and expects to have enough supply to meet demand. Here's Roberts again. I would feel very reassured going into this winter season when many of us are really expecting surges in RSV the way we had pre-COVID. RSV activity has already begun this year in some states. The Pfizer vaccine joins another shot given to babies up to 24 months old. It's technically not a vaccine, but it too prevents RSV. It's a monoclonal antibody made by AstraZeneca that was also approved in July. For Roberts, this is good news. His family is expecting a baby in December. Having a baby in the middle of RSV season with, uh, you know, another sibling in daycare, you know, that really concerns me. And when I think about this year compared to last year where we might have these options, you know, I'm just thrilled with that. So he will eagerly await the vaccine rollout. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. It's election time in Zimbabwe, and the Southern African nation's ruling party, ZANU-PF, has been accused of using violence and other intimidation tactics on opposition figures and critics. All this at a time when the country is still dealing with one of the world's highest rates of inflation. Tendai Murima reports from the capital, Harare. A crowd of thousands spill over the beach cross of Robert Mugabe Square at a ZANU-PF rally in central Harare. The music, the rousing speeches, the party faithful chants. And the fears of voter intimidation, crackdowns on opposition critics and violence. Election season has a very familiar pattern for many here in Zimbabwe. When people vote in Wednesday's closely contested election for a new president, councillors and members of parliament, there are low expectations that the results will be fair, despite what the president says to the crowd at this rally. We in Zanpiv will not accept anyone to come and teach us democracy. 80-year-old President Emerson Mnangagwa is the former ally of longtime ruler President Robert Mugabe. The presidential race is fundamentally a contest between Mnangagwa and his ZANU-PF party and opposition leader Nelson Chamisa of the Citizens' Coalition for Change party. If there is no outright winner in the presidential contest, a runoff will be held on the 2nd of October. We are a constitutional democracy. We are year in, year out entrenching constitutionalism and democracy. Fine words, but the cautious optimism that existed after Mnangagwa managed to unseat Mugabe in a slow-motion coup in 2017 has all but disappeared now. And with it, 
the hopes of improving a shattered economy. Dollar, dollar, dollar for Carrots, tomatoes, onions and collard greens are piled on stalls in this market in the southern city of Bulawayo. Vendors like Thomas Chuma hawk their wares. For most, the informal economy is the only way to survive here in Zimbabwe. We are now too many in the streets. We are now too many. There is no future. We need some changes. Things must change. Vegetables are not the only product on sale here. This is a market that literally throws bad money after good. Speaking in the local language, Ndebele, a trader with a megaphone encourages people to sell their old, torn US dollars. He'll then repair them with glue and recirculate them at a profit. This is the land of billion percent inflation. The land of the $100 trillion Zimbabwe bill where the local currency, the Zimbabwe dollar, was deemed so worthless, the US dollar replaced it at one point. After decades of disastrous economic policies under Mugabe, Munangagwa promised a reversal of fortunes to little effect. Doreen Chigumbo tells me she has been working in this market for over 10 years. It's hard to tell where we are going, she tells me. But I don't see any hope considering that there's little investment here in Zimbabwe. People just don't have the hard cash, even here at the market. At the opposition party's manifesto launch, their presidential candidate, Nelson Chamisa, talks of restoring Zimbabwe's fortunes. This was one of the only major rallies the party has been allowed to hold during the campaign. Many have been blocked by the police. Zimbabweans, I want to thank you all for the love. We thank you. God bless you. Thank you. As opposition leader, 45-year-old pastor and lawyer, Chamisa knows he faces a huge challenge. The challenge of unseating ZANU-PF, a party that has dominated Zimbabwean politics for over 40 years. His opponent, President Mnangagwa, is known as the crocodile for his political cunning. And that crocodile wants another bite of power. For NPR News, I'm Tendai Marima in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Tuesday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, we learn about efforts by officials in Maui who are scrambling to find housing for thousands of people displaced by wildfires. Sunny, breezy, and upper 70s today. Clear skies in around 60 tonight. Sunny again tomorrow and in the mid-70s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. 
Plymouth can now host cruise ships in its harbor. The town welcomed its first ship from American Cruise Lines this past weekend. The port can now accommodate the ships thanks to state funding that paid to dredge the water near the port. Lee Filson is president of Sea Plymouth. She says the town is thrilled to welcome the new tourists. It means so much to us to be able to welcome additional passengers and additional visitors into our community by car, train, plane, and by whatever means necessary. And in as much as it is our number one industry, we're very, very happy to get additional tourists. Plymouth will become a regular stop on two American Cruise Lines routes in future seasons. Gillette Stadium in Foxborough may not be as well-loved as the team that plays there. A new report from The Athletic puts the stadium in 21st place in its ranking of top 30 NFL stadiums. The report says proximity to major cities and press box amenities could play a role in rankings. The Minnesota Vikings U.S. Bank Stadium received the publication's top ranking. It's 744. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Passing gun regulations on the national level is difficult, so some local officials are taking it upon themselves. One Philadelphia suburb has sparked a debate about what kinds of gun restrictions are possible for municipalities in conservative-led states. Here's Emily Rizzo. Shot Tech is the only commercial firearms business in Lower Marion Township. It sits in a mostly residential area in a leafy suburb. Customers can order guns online, semi-automatic rifles, pistols, ammunition, pretty much anything a gun owner would need, and they pick up those orders at the storefront. But because those guns aren't sold there, owner Grant Schmidt says technically it's not a gun shop. In fact, he offers gun safety classes. And we've used advanced simulation technology to teach people how to shoot and defend themselves. Schmidt greets a UPS delivery, a customer's order. It's going to open that box. Inside's going to be a box, probably with a firearm. We're going to contact that customer. When Shot Tech opened, neighbors worried because these guns were close to homes, close to schools. They organized a push for new gun sale regulations. Now Lower Marion has limited gun businesses to only certain commercial, mostly non-residential areas, and not inside homes. It's risky because Pennsylvania has a law called the Preemption Statute, which says that towns can't pass stricter gun laws than the state. 
But this regulation passed unanimously in April. Yes. The ordinance is duly adopted. Thank you, Madam Secretary. I look forward, if it comes to that, to defending this and defending our right as a municipality to have self-determination in this state. Schmidt and a Pennsylvania PAC that advocates for gun owners is now challenging the ordinance in court. What the township did is they made it less accessible for people to access their rights and for people to access things like gunsmithing, etc. Township Commissioner Mike McKeon says he feels the regulation will survive a legal challenge because it's a zoning law. Before this, gun stores could open anywhere in Lower Marion, which is one of Pennsylvania's largest municipalities. So when you have that kind of size, we have the ability to try to uh, zone it and put firearms in certain districts and not in others. They can't say for sure that it will reduce gun violence, but they believe it's a start. But what we can guarantee is we're trying to make everyone feel safer. But Grant Schmidt argues safety doesn't come from limiting businesses or guns. For him, the solution entails armed security at gathering places like schools. There's a variety of ways to do that, and that's where the discussion should be. Schmidt's business, Shot Tech, is just a few blocks away from the home of Joe Oxman, who helped fight for the new ordinance. Oxman wants to make it harder for new gun stores to open. Gun violence isn't rampant in this area, but he's thinking of neighboring Philadelphia. The last thing I would ever want to hear is that a death was caused in Philadelphia from the sale of a gun in Lower Marion Township. He says maybe it's symbolic, but it's more than the usual thoughts and prayers politicians often say. We're not going to change the world here, but at least we're showing what this township is about. The final word is expected to be settled in county court. A hearing on the lawsuit is expected to be scheduled in the coming months. For NPR News, I'm Emily Rizzo in Philadelphia. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a new report finds that rising sea levels caused by climate change could mean California will lose most of its beaches by the end of this century. It's 7.49. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition, a radio program that is consistent. You hear the same voices at the same time every morning, no matter what is happening in the world. You hear familiar voices. This morning we bring you news of a huge legal settlement. Bringing often unfamiliar and surprising facts. Unidentified anomalous phenomena. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The Department of Justice is filing a lawsuit against Texas for placing dangerous buoys in the Rio Grande meant to keep migrants from crossing the border. Leaders of the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, are meeting in Johannesburg today to consider a request by several countries to join their group as members. And after a visit to Maui, President Biden is promising federal support for wildfire victims for as long as recovery efforts continue. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
WBUR supporters include Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Upper 70s and sunny today, and it might be a bit windy. Skies stay clear tonight as temperatures fall to around 60. Tomorrow, mid-70s and sunny. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Ukraine is finally getting the F-16 fighter jets it has been asking for. It's unclear how many jets NATO allies will be sending, but getting them on the battlefield will not be swift. Flying them requires months of training. But NATO forces have been working with Ukrainian troops in Western Europe for months now already, teaching them how to use NATO military gear and to fight according to NATO tactics. NPR's Kiev correspondent Joanna Kikissis and producer Producer Polina Litvinova report on what these soldiers have learned. So it's just rained and the camp is pretty muddy, kind of like quicksand. Whoa. We're walking now to one of the Bradley armored personnel carriers, and Oleksandr's going to show it to us. Oleksandr is a soldier and mechanic, and he wouldn't give his full name for security reasons. When the U.S. promised the Bradleys to Ukraine, Oleksandr was sent to the Netherlands where NATO experts taught him to repair them. Now he's stationed at a Bradley repair camp not far from the front line. He says he repaired one in just two hours. Those he can't fix go to Poland. Bradleys are often mistaken for tanks, but they have less weaponry. They hold a three-person crew and six soldiers. Each Bradley, after repair, has a final test. We never give it back before testing. The most important thing, he says, is that if the Bradley's crew drives over a mine, it's okay. They survive. Ukraine's 47th Separate Mechanized Brigade is the only one using Bradley's. A commander in one of the brigade's companies, he gives his call sign as Hans, contrasts the Bradleys with the Soviet-era vehicles the Ukrainians usually use. In Soviet vehicles, there would 100% be much greater losses. Hans has just come in from the front line. We meet him at a camp where other soldiers are staying. He's 25 with freckles and a beard, and he speaks carefully. Before the war, he was a lawyer. He learned about Bradley's and NATO battlefield strategy earlier this year in Grafenvor, a U.S. training base in Germany. When we were training, we were shown various ways of evacuating wounded comrades. And it helps during shelling because we already know what to do next. But he admits that not everything has worked. The training did not consider how many mines the Russians would plant on the southern front. And, he says... Russian troops are very determined to destroy Western vehicles like the Bradleys with direct missile hits. The enemy, when they see through drones or reconnaissance that a vehicle is damaged or knocked down, they concentrate all their forces on finishing it off. And they make it as difficult as possible for us to evacuate. When the counteroffensive started, he said he put pressure on himself to move quickly. Now he has other priorities. We understand that lives are the most important to save, because you won't get very far in battle without enough people. At the same location near an overgrown garden, we meet Oleksiy Reva. 
Алексея Рева. He's a famous comedian in Ukraine. Before the war, Reva and his identical twin brother hosted a popular comedy sketch show called Mama is Laughing. Now the twins are in the 47th Brigade together, working in the personnel department. They studied personnel management at the U.S. training base in Germany. Many people, even within the armed forces, do not understand how important high-quality and accurate personnel accounting is. Who is wounded? Who is motivated? The tasks we perform depend on having a precise accounting of that. Reva says there are more than 5,000 people in the brigade, with 30 in the personnel department. He says everyone counts the months separated from their families. His wife and eight-year-old son are in Poland. How long has it been since you've seen your family? It's been seven months. Reva holds back tears and changes the subject. He says he and his brother sometimes do stand-up comedy for the troops. You have to find some way to pull yourself out of this emotional abyss. There's lots of dark humor, but we have a rule. We never joke about losses. At a busy park in the city of Zaporizhia, we meet one of the brigade's medics, who is 29 and goes by the call sign Harvest. I've seen so many shrapnel wounds, lots of ruptured eardrums, severed limbs. Harvest was an emergency room doctor before the war and trained with NATO medics in Germany. He learned how to use new bandages and tourniquets. They also taught us to use anything we had in front of us, like a rag, a branch, anything. He says he often treats injuries caused by shrapnel and landmines stacked on top of each other. We call them sandwiches. A medic who was with me in Germany was blown up by mines while trying to help evacuate his comrades. One leg was barely saved. The other had to be amputated. Harvest also saw what happened when a Russian anti-tank missile hit a Bradley commanded by a close friend, Moto. His entire crew were like supermen. They destroyed tanks. They destroyed enemy infantry. But several anti-tank missiles hit the Bradley and it caught fire. When Moto was pulled out of the Bradley, Harvest saw right away that he was dying. He was always cheerful, never depressed, even living out here in the woods. He could get himself out of any situation. But when I saw him... I knew that was it. I still remember the warmth of his blood and that his eyes were just staring straight ahead. Those eyes, well, they just... The doctor turns away to wipe his eyes and pull himself together. The NATO trainees are headed back to the front line. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, in the Zaporizhia region of Ukraine. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. 
Breezy and upper 70s today under sunny skies. Temperatures may dip into the 50s tonight. Tomorrow, mid-70s and sunny again. Clouds move in on Thursday for a partly sunny day in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump says he'll surrender to Georgia authorities Thursday to face charges that he conspired to overturn his 2020 election loss in the state. It's Tuesday, August 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, while surveying damage in Maui, President Biden pledged to help survivors of Hawaii's wildfires for as long as it takes them to recover. Also this hour. Texas went back and moved the buoys to a location where it is clear they are on the United States side. Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott is defending barriers on the Rio Grande meant to deter migrants after they drifted into Mexican waters. And we learn how some Massachusetts providers are trying to improve health by reducing loneliness. If there's ways that we could really support people by connecting them with others, then we absolutely should do that. Sunny in upper 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Tropical Storm Harold is bringing heavy rains and strong winds as it approaches the South Texas Gulf Coast. Texas Public Radio's Marianne Navarro reports the storm is expected to impact regions from the coastal bend to the Rio Grande Valley. Tropical Storm Harold formed over the western Gulf just after midnight last night. Areas including Brownsville and Corpus Christi are bracing for isolated to scattered flash flooding. Forecasters predict up to six inches of rain could occur along the coastline. Texas Governor Greg Abbott activated state emergency responses and ordered the Texas Division of Emergency Management to deploy emergency resources along the area. Residents along the coastal area are encouraged to pay attention to weather forecasts and prepare emergency kits and evacuation routes as a precaution. I'm Mariana Navarro in San Antonio. What was once Tropical Storm Hillary has lost much of its force as it trails off into the western north, headed for the Rocky Mountains. Recovery efforts are underway in Southern California. President Biden returned to the mainland overnight after a day on the fire-ravaged Hawaiian island of Maui. He toured the island's extensive devastation from a wildfire two weeks ago and met with community leaders and first responders, speaking with people at an event in Lahaina. Community organizer Kaimana Brummel attended the gathering. A elder of the Lahaina community who personally lost his home and his family members also lost homes was able to give a speech in front of everyone and have the president listen to wishes um, on behalf of the community for how they want the rebuilding to go, which is on their terms. Officials on Maui have released two more names of victims who died from the historic blaze there two weeks ago. The death toll stands at 115, up one from yesterday. 35 victims have been identified. At the same time, more than 800 people on Maui remain unaccounted for. 
Former President Donald Trump says he'll go to Atlanta Thursday to be booked at the Fulton County Jail. Trump is facing 13 felony counts in Georgia related to alleged efforts to overturn the state's 2020 election result. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Gringless reports. The day after the first GOP presidential debate, which Trump is skipping, the former president will have his mugshot and fingerprints taken at Fulton County's Rice Street Jail. The sheriff's office says the jail perimeter will be under lockdown once the former president arrives. A judge has signed off on a $200,000 bond, so Trump will be released to await trial on several conditions. One is that he'll be forbidden from intimidating co-defendants or witnesses, including through posts on social media or by reposting others. Trump is one of 19 charged in a sweeping racketeering case. The defendants have until Friday to voluntarily surrender. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is NPR. Russian President Vladimir Putin will not physically attend the so-called BRICS summit in person. The meeting of leaders from Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa is taking place in South Africa. Putin will only participate via video call due to an international criminal court arrest warrant issued for him in March over the abduction of children from Ukraine. Thailand's self-exiled Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat has returned home after more than 15 years, even as Thailand's parliament has confirmed a new Prime Minister, Srita Thavisan. NPR's Michael Sullivan has more. Thaksin was deposed by the military in 2006 and has been living in exile to avoid facing charges of corruption and abuse of office he claims are politically motivated. He was convicted in absentia on several counts, but has remained a key player in Thai politics, even in exile. His sister, Ying Luck, became prime minister in 2011, before her government, too, was removed by a military coup in 2014. After his arrival, Thaksin was taken to the Supreme Court, where he was sentenced to eight years in connection with three separate cases. It's unclear how much time he will actually serve. Michael Sullivan, NPR News. Chiang Rai. In a sign that Pyongyang is opening its borders again after three years of COVID restrictions, a North Korean commercial flight has taken off for Beijing. The flight was reported to have landed in Beijing earlier today. China is North Korea's closest diplomatic ally. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new database containing disciplinary records of Massachusetts police officers is now available to the public. The records are available on the Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission website. It includes records from officers who resigned or retired to avoid punishment. Records for more than 2,100 officers are on the list. A Lowell police sergeant is accusing the Department of Racial Discrimination for bypassing him for a recent promotion. As WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports, Sergeant Francisco Maldonado is appealing the move to the State Civil Service Commission. Lowell officials said even though Maldonado was the top-ranked candidate for the job, they bypassed him because of his disciplinary history. The department found Maldonado failed to properly secure a crime scene and improperly used sick time. Massachusetts Association of Minority Law Enforcement Officers President Jeffrey Lopes argues white officers were promoted after much more serious violations. Sergeant Maldonado has been a vocal member of the Lowell Police Department calling out issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. I think here we see a clear example of retaliation and of injustice. Lowell Police declined to comment, citing the active civil service appeal. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. New Hampshire Fish and Game is urging people to be careful when exploring the White Mountains. Two Massachusetts parents died in separate incidents in the last week while trying to rescue their kids from fast-moving rivers. Those children were ultimately saved by other people at the scene. New Hampshire Fish and Game Colonel Kevin Jordan says this summer's heavy rains has made the rivers colder, deeper, and faster. See if you can see any objects above the water. Uh, see how fast the current is going by those objects, and then just take an extra few seconds and decide, is that worth taking a chance with my family, or would it be better if I went somewhere in a lake or a pond where where the water's higher and colder, but at least the likelihood of that fast current doesn't exist. He also recommends that kids venturing into rivers wear life jackets. The Boston Symphony Orchestra is taking its show to Europe. Members of the organization are leaving today for their first tour of the continent since 2018. During the two-week trip, the BSO will perform 12 concerts in nine cities. Those include London, Berlin, and Paris. It's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. The Red Sox lost their first of four games to the Astros last night. The series opener ended with a five-run deficit for the Sox. Final score was 9-4. to The teams face off again in Houston tonight at 8. We'll have a sunny day today with highs in the upper 70s. Tonight mostly clear with temperatures dipping into the 50s. Tomorrow sunny and in the upper 70s again. Right now it's 66 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. In a few minutes, we'll hear why Parisian booksellers are protesting the plan for next year's Paris Olympics. But first, President Biden is making a promise to survivors of one of the deadliest wildfires in American history. For as long as it takes, we're going to be with you. The whole country will be with you. The president traveled to Maui to pledge federal help in rebuilding the historic seaside town of Lahaina. That's where the death toll has now risen to 115. Most of those victims remain unidentified. NPR's Jennifer Ludden is in Maui, and she's on the line with us now to tell us more. Jennifer, hello. Thanks for joining us. Hi. So it's been two weeks since this terrible fire. Where are the survivors now? Well, you know, a lot of them are still squeezing in with family and friends, but now more than 1,900 have been placed in hotels or Airbnbs. You know, this is a big tourist destination. There are a lot of those. Amanda Vieira's family of four is in a one-bedroom with about three weeks of rent help from the state, and she is grateful. But she says because of damage from the fire, you know, cell service has been spotty, and just applying for aid online has been incredibly difficult. There's no Wi-Fi and stuff, and so I have to, like, stand at a certain spot in my room to get internet, which is hard. And, you know, we lost two cars, a dirt bike, and you can't get anywhere to get Wi-Fi if you don't have a car. Vera just got approved for a FEMA payment. She says it's $5,462, and it is supposed to be for two months housing. But she says the place that she's in now is a lot more than that. And it's not easy finding housing here. It's one of the most expensive markets in the country. There was a housing shortage even before the fire. Vera says her sister-in-law got so frustrated looking for a place she and her kids just left for Washington State. You know, that sounds like a huge challenge. So what are people being told about how long they'll even have this aid? 
Hawaii's governor has said people will have their housing paid into next spring. But a lot of people I speak with, they just don't seem to trust that, including Jeremy Delos Reyes. There's a couple of resorts in this area that they're trying to open in 11 days, 12 days. So now where does those hotel rooms go, right? Because they, they need tourism. Well, they think they need tourism here. Reyes was born and raised here, and there is some tension around tourism. Um, it's helped drive up the cost of living. Of course, it provides many thousands of jobs. Um, several people have told me they see so many empty vacation homes, and they wish more of those owners would let fire survivors stay in them for a bit. And, you know, Reyes admits the idea of leaving, it's tempting. Um, he's a high school teacher, and he works in construction. His house was destroyed. His parents bought it in 1970, and it was last assessed at more than $800,000. He says he could never afford to pay that much. So during uh, President Biden's visit, he and other political leaders repeatedly said that Lahaina should be rebuilt the way that residents want it. Are you hearing from people about that and what are they saying? Very much so. There is a real fear that longtime residents will lose their land here to developers. And, you know, this place has cultural significance. It was the site of the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. And you do see this over and over after extreme weather events. Uh, rebuilding is expensive and people get priced out. And in Lahaina, it was the older, less expensive area that burned. At least two apartments were subsidized housing. And last year, one of them fought a legal battle against a developer to keep it that way. Um, now, the governor has said he wants to find some way to ban property sales for a while. Some residents say they've already gotten phone calls from developers wanting to buy their land. And community activists have been rallying them, telling them to stay strong and not sell. That's NPR's Jennifer Ludden in Maui. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you. Hearings begin today over the legality of a string of buoys in the Rio Grande. The Justice Department is suing Texas, which is using the barrier to deter migrants from crossing the river into the U.S. The buoys have also caused some diplomatic tension between the U.S. and Mexico, which Texas Governor Greg Abbott spoke about yesterday. The buoys had drifted toward the Mexico side. And so out of an abundance of caution, uh, Texas went back uh, and moved the buoys uh, into a location uh, where it is clear that they are on the United States side, not on the Mexico side. Joining us now from Texas Public Radio in San Antonio is David Martin Davies. Uh, you've seen these buoys firsthand. Tell us about those. Well, I went to see them while I was on a reporting trip kayaking down the Rio Grande. Each orange ball is four foot in diameter, has a sort of a circular saw blade in between each of the buoys. And the water that they're in is just about shin deep. And so right now there's roughly a thousand feet of the buoys in the water. Wow, a saw blade. My goodness. All right. So what's the significance then of the buoys being on the Mexican side of the Rio Grande? Well, the Sperrier has really ticked off Mexico. Uh, they're not happy that it was in their sovereign territory. So Texas moving them back appears to be an attempt to placate uh, the Mexican government. But this does come at a time when U.S. relations with Mexico is critical. Mexico is pledging that they're going to do a lot more to stop the flow of the narcotic fentanyl flowing across the border. This is a huge crisis for the United States. So keeping Mexico acting in good faith as a partner in this is a priority. But moving the buoys closer to Texas is not going to make, take care of the main issue of this lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. So what's at stake then with this lawsuit brought by the Department of Justice against the state of Texas? 
Well, the crux of the lawsuit is who controls the southern border. Is it going to be states like Texas or is it going to be the federal government? Typically, the authority has been with the feds, but Governor Abbott is arguing that the Biden administration is ignoring the border. Abbott says Texas is being invaded by illegal immigrants, and he wants to put miles and miles of these buoys in the Rio Grande. And yesterday, the Republican governors of Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Oklahoma visited Abbott on the border for a helicopter tour, and they all came away saying things like, quote, this is a war zone, and now how every state is now a border state because the Biden administration's policies of, quote, abandoning the border. Now, to be clear, none of that is true, and a majority of immigrants are asylum seekers and refugees. The buoy lawsuit is likely to drag on for a while. No doubt it will continue to be a major political issue as we roll into the 2024 presidential election. Abbott, he's not up for election, but exploiting the insecurities about the southern border is part of the Republican playbook. So we've gone from build that wall to float that ball. David Martin Davies of Texas Public Radio, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Planners of next summer's Olympic Games in Paris are promising a spectacular event like nothing you've seen before, starting with the Parade of Nations, which will take place in boats on the River Seine. But the ceremony will displace a treasured symbol of Paris, the hundreds of green bookstalls that line the riverbank. Rebecca Rossman tells us more. Sixty-nine year old bookseller Victoire Ruiz flashes a big smile as she counts change for her second customer of the day. Ruiz hands a friendly German tourist his purchase, a German translation of Alexandre Dumas's The Three Musketeers. By now it's nearly 4 p.m. Two sales at her stall on the Seine River obviously isn't a lot. But like many of the city's 230 bouquinistes, or riverside booksellers, she hardly got into this profession for the money. This is the greatest period of my life, says Ruiz, who in 2017 took over this dark green stall near the Notre Dame Cathedral after spending decades working as a translator. Louise says life as a bouquinist carries a certain charming rhythm, one that now stands to be disrupted during next summer's Paris Olympic Games. Earlier this month, the Paris mayor's office issued an order for the bouquinist to be temporarily dismantled during the Games, citing security reasons. But we're going to fight to stay, Louise insists. She raises her fists in the direction of the Paris City Hall. Otherwise, they're going to pay for this, she says. According to an association representing the Bucaniste, the Olympic Games combined with the dismantling of their stalls means they stand to lose up to four months of business. Ruiz and other Bucaniste have at least one big upper hand. Many people in this book-loving nation want them to stay. The Bucaniste have been around for more than four centuries, says passerby Breton Gwen, who calls the move a disgrace. The history of the Bucaniste is absolutely fascinating. That's professional tour guide Stephanie Paul. We're standing on the Pont Neuf, the oldest bridge in Paris, as she walks me through the history of how the Bucaniste got their name. It comes from the Dutch word Bouchin, which literally means little book. Bouquinistes originally met the needs of students on the hunt for everything from books to stamps and maps. While their demographic has expanded to, well, 
just about any reader, the goods they offer pretty much remain the same. As for their impending temporary removal, Paul says the city's purpose isn't entirely clear. I don't know if they're worried that someone's going to throw a heavy book at an athlete or something, you know, take out the entire um, volleyball team. I, who knows? But I do definitely think that the Paris government is going to use this as an opportunity to revamp the way the Bucanistes are, for good or for bad. She points out that some of the stalls, which are all owned by the city, are in desperate need of repairs. Bucaniste Victoire Ruiz agrees on that point but says putting in new stalls is the kind of thing that shouldn't take more than a few weeks, let alone a few months. After all, the summer, with its nice weather and influx of tourism, brings in the best months of the year to be a Bukinese, she says, with or without the Olympics. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Paris. This is NPR News. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we look at the overall context of climate change's advance amid this summer's wildfires, hurricanes, heat waves, and droughts. It's 8.20. What if you could taste the world's electric fields, hear vibrations in a leaf, or see magnetic currents guiding you home? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me as science writer Ed Yong helps us perceive the world the way animals do, through new eyes, ears, antenna, and more. That's On Point, this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny today with a high near 77. It could get a bit windy. Tonight's skies stay clear and temperatures fall to lows around 60. Tomorrow, sunny again with a high near 75. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Imagine California without beaches. We looked at future erosion potential going into about the year 2100, you know, and we found that depending on the sea level rise scenario, California might lose about a quarter to three quarters of its beaches. That is Sean Batusek, a researcher for the U.S. Geological Survey based in Santa Cruz, California. He authored a study using satellite images going back decades, then combined those images with models of climate crisis-driven sea level rise. Batusek says it wouldn't take much rise to lose a lot of coastline. 
the rule of thumb is basically for about every meter of sea level rise, you're probably going to get about 30 meters of coastal erosion happening. So when you get into three meters of sea level rise, you're talking almost 100 meters, you know, 300 plus feet of, of uh, erosion under those large scenarios. Not to mention the, the flooding challenges that are also associated with sea level rise. You just have more severe and more frequent floods associated with waves. Vitusik's study is a prediction of what may happen, and while he's confident in it, he admits having healthy skepticism is always important. So I got a second opinion because California losing 75% of its beaches, I mean, those numbers just can't be right. Yeah, they look right. They're consistent with his previous study. He used a you know different approach. And so whenever we have two approaches like that that arrive at a similar conclusion, that makes me feel like the results are relatively robust. So I, I do believe it. Kathleen Traceder studies and teaches climate change at the University of California, Irvine. I met her at Sunset Beach in Orange County. It's one of the places in Southern California that Vitusik says is most feeling the effects of coastal erosion. As we were standing on the sand on the edge of the Pacific Ocean, things kind of looked all right to me. There's a long row of what probably are very expensive places to live on either side of us, and people were hanging out, having fun in the sun. So I asked Traceder why should they be worried? Well, because as we have the sea level rise, as you can see, this is a very shallow area. The sand doesn't go up um, uphill to the houses very steeply, right? So these houses are actually, it looks like within about 10 feet of the ocean right now. And so just from normal sea level rise, just without even any waves, you know, the waves should be lapping at their uh, porches by the end of the century. Uh, but then when you add these big storm surges, that's just gonna take out these homes. I mean, these homes were not designed to be battered by really severe waves. Do you think that people who live here right now kind of realize that, or are they maybe putting it behind <laughs> behind them, I, or behind, at the back of their minds <laughs> as much as possible? I Well, looking here, there are a number of homes that are re being renovated. There are some that clearly were renovated lately. I mean, if I were a homeowner, I wouldn't be doing that if I were worried about it. My guess is they probably don't realize so a place like Sunset Beach here, what kind of things could they do, if at all, to try and survive it, or at least try and not let this happen? Well, there are a few different things they can do. Some are short-term, some are long-term. Like some are like the Band-Aid and others are like the cure. So the short-term is that as the sand washes away, they can just truck in more sand and just keep adding more sand as the sand washes away. You can imagine that that is not sustainable. The next thing that they could do is potentially put in infrastructure. So some cities have put in where there's cliffs that are in danger. They'll harden the cliffs, so they'll put like concrete um, on the base of the cliffs or big boulders. Um, that's an option. Here, where there's no cliffs like that, you could potentially put use some green infrastructure out just out into the ocean where you could make a like a barrier island that would break those waves. So if the waves hit a barrier island, then they lose their energy. It won't hit the beach so hard. Um, that's like medium. The long term solution is just we have to reverse climate change. You know, the ocean's going to do what the ocean's going to do and we can you know, stop it to a certain extent, but we're nowhere near as powerful as the ocean. So we're kind of at its mercy. 
In addition to teaching at UC Irvine, Traceder is on the Irvine City Council. Now, Irvine is not a city on California's coast. It's around six miles inland from where we were standing. So how does coastal erosion and sea level rise affect what Traceder does in Irvine? You'd be surprised. So the deal is that we are landlocked, but we are intricately connected with the Newport Bay and the ocean because we have a creek, the San Diego Creek, that drains all the water off the city down into the bay and into the ocean. So it's our job as a city to be good neighbors and to make sure that we, for instance, remove all the pollutants that are coming off the city into the water. So we actually have built a natural um, water purification ecosystem. And as it goes through the marshland, it cleans it almost entirely, removes pollutants, then when that goes into the bay, we're not causing any problems in the bay. Now, as sea levels rise, there is actually going to inundate that marsh community. And so it won't be able to work the way it's supposed to. So that means that these pollutants would be going right into the ocean. And are there other cities that are in the same situation as Irvine, where if sea level rise occurs, it could actually affect some of the things that you're talking about in Irvine? Yeah, there are creeks and rivers that drain offshore into the ocean, all up and down the coast. We are connected. Um, just because we're a bit inland doesn't mean that we don't affect the ocean. And so that's true for really any city along the coast that has that sort of connection with the rivers or the creeks. Do you see any hope? Well, no, I do have hope. I, I have to. I'm doing all this work to try to combat climate change. You know, humans change the atmosphere um, one way. We can change it back, for sure. It's just the question of the, the will of the people. So, you know, we're up for it. And I imagine that we're not all that different from many places around the world. That's Kathleen Traceder, professor of climate change at UC Irvine and a member of the Irvine City Council. So, hey, Michelle, are people on the East Coast worried about their beaches eroding, maybe? Where I live, the big story seems to be sharks. But that, you know, could make sense if you think about it, because, you know, there's that old saying, we're built for tigers, not for floods, which means we're kind of built to react to the immediate threat, not the long-term one. Yeah, people that I spoke to on the beach uh, that I was on, they were telling me, look, you're telling me about a problem that's 80 years away? Yeah, no thanks. Scientists seem to be more worried about this uh, than people. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, we learn about a new project by some Massachusetts providers that seeks to improve health by reducing loneliness. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
Officials in Hawaii say more than 800 people are still missing following deadly wildfires on Maui. The death toll stands at 115. The search continues for human remains in the charred rubble of buildings and vehicles. President Biden surveyed the destruction yesterday and promised the federal government will work as long as it takes to help the state recover. The country grieves with you, stands with you, and will do everything possible to help you recover rebuild and respect culture and traditions when the rebuilding takes place. The flames largely destroyed the historic town of Lahaina. Haiti and the Dominican Republic are bracing for heavy rains and flooding from Tropical Storm Franklin. It's expected to make landfall in Hispaniola sometime tomorrow. The governor of Massachusetts recently declared an emergency because of large numbers of migrants being sheltered in the state. The mayor of Woburn, outside Boston, says a hotel in his city is being converted to an emergency shelter. Woburn's a welcoming community, um, but there are going to be impacts and costs, particularly at the school level, that, uh, you know, the state's going to have to, and they are, going to be helping us with those costs. That's Mayor Scott Galvin, who says dozens of migrant families are expected soon. Many are from Haiti. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Block Island's historic harborside inn will likely be torn down by the end of this week. This comes after a fire tore through the building over the weekend. State fire officials tell the Boston Globe the building is a total loss. The cause of the fire is still under investigation. The leader of a group that represents Massachusetts farmers says a law that prohibits pigs from being held in extreme confinement won't have much impact in the state. As Oldenborn reports, the measure takes effect later this week. The law, which was passed by Massachusetts voters through a ballot question in 2016, requires pigs on farms be provided enough room to turn around and lie down. It also requires pork produced outside the state but sold within meet the requirements. Karen Schwalbe, who leads the Massachusetts Farm Bureau Federation, says her members don't use the kind of confinement the law prohibits. It's a production agriculture practice that's not used by small-scale farmers like we have in Massachusetts. There is one wrinkle regarding the new law. A group of Midwest pork producers recently filed a lawsuit to try and stop the restrictions from taking effect. A judge has scheduled a hearing on the challenge for early September. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Sports betting at the former dog track in Raynham is up in the air after state gaming regulators declined to approve an application yesterday. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission wants Raynham Park to find a new chief operating officer. It also wants Raynham to find a sports book operator. Raynham Park says it can't move forward on finding a new operator until the commission agrees it's suitable for a license. The Boston Children's Rec Fest kicks off this morning in Franklin Park. The annual event for children and families was supposed to take place last week but was delayed due to rain. Face Free activities include face painting, puppet shows, and other arts and crafts. The Children's Rec Fest begins at 10 a.m. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com.
The Red Sox were defeated by the Astros in Houston last night. Final score was 9-4. to The Sox have three more chances to turn things around this series. That includes tonight's game at 8. Highs in the upper 70s today under clear skies. Tonight's still clear and it falls to lows around 60. Tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s and sunny again. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. There is no ignoring this. Extreme weather events that are disrupting so many lives this summer and in too many cases taking lives. Yeah, listen to this list. Intense wildfires in Hawaii, in Washington State and across Canada. A former hurricane that has walloped Mexico, California and Nevada and now threatens Oregon and Idaho and a suffocating heat wave across the central and southern U.S. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk is here to tell us more about this. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Okay, so let's just say it. This isn't just bad luck, is it? No, no, not at all. You know, it's all related to human-caused climate change. Climate change does not cause extreme events, right? But really intense fires and hurricanes, it makes them more likely and more common. So as the Earth heats up, we increasingly get these years, especially summers, where it feels like disaster on disaster on disaster, all of them driven in part by warmer temperatures. So, for example, hurricanes. They've always happened, but when the ocean is abnormally hot at the surface, it helps hurricanes grow. We are seeing that right now in both the Pacific, where Hurricane Hillary formed, and in the Atlantic, where there are multiple potential storms right now. The same is true for wildfires. Wildfires are an important part of healthy forest ecosystems, but drought and heat can make them burn more widely, make them burn more intensely than in the past. So if it feels like it can't be normal, it's not, or it didn't used to be. So is this a preview of our future on a planet that's heating up? You know, in some ways, I think yes, especially in August. You know, it can be a stark reminder of climate change for millions of people in the U.S. this time of year because there is so much extreme weather. But it's not like this year is that exceptional, to be frank, especially if you zoom out and look at the planet as a whole. Last year, there were record-breaking hurricanes and wildfires and heat waves. The year before that, same deal. The year before that and the year before that. And I say that not to minimize it, but to give the context. You know, the last nine years are the hottest nine years ever recorded on planet Earth. Climate change is just relentlessly wreaking havoc on people everywhere. It's just a matter of when that extreme weather will come for you and arrive in your community. Is it possible to avoid even more catastrophic effects? You know, it is. Um, The big thing is to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Stop burning oil and gas and coal. Transition to wind and solar. Scientists say that we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in half by the end of the decade and get all the way to basically zero by 2050. Right now, 
it is not clear that there's political will to do that. There's an array of fossil fuel and corporate interests that are slowing things down. The other thing to remember, though, is that even though climate change does make the weather more intense, we can lessen the damage by building our homes and our cities and our electrical grids in resilient ways by having emergency plans that keep climate-driven weather in mind because it's going to keep happening by preparing and protecting those who are most vulnerable to this weather. You know, I'm thinking about floods like the ones in California this week or the fire in Maui. The weather was related to climate change to varying degrees, but how we prepare for and react to that weather can determine who lives and who dies. That's Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk. Rebecca, thanks so much once again. Thanks. What's known as the BRICS group of emerging economies, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, kicks off its annual summit today in Johannesburg. Yeah, it's a block of nations that is sometimes dismissed for a lot of talk with little substance. But this year, the U.S. and Europe are watching closely because of how polarizing Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been. China's President Xi Jinping will attend in person. Russian President Vladimir Putin will not, but will join virtually to avoid putting South Africa in the awkward position of having to arrest him for war crimes under an international criminal court warrant. We're going to hear more about this from Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. So why don't you just start us off with the headlines? What are the key issues these leaders will take up? Well, two main things are on the agenda this year, namely the possible expansion of the bloc to include more countries. Already, collectively, BRICS accounts for 25% of global GDP and 40% of the world's population. Now, some 40 more countries have expressed interest in joining the bloc. And like the current grouping, they include a politically diverse group with democracies like Argentina and autocracies like Iran. But not all the BRICS members are as keen on expansion as others. Russia is spearheading the push for expansion, as because of the war in Ukraine, Russia is increasingly isolated. Another main issue on the agenda will be the bloc's desire to move away from U.S. dollar dominance and to promote more use of its own currencies. Kate, would you say more about whether the group is becoming more relevant? I think so. The sheer number wanting to join shows many global South countries buy what BRICS is selling, an alternative to what they see as a U.S.-dominated, unequal global order something the summit host and South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, referred to in an eve of summit address to the nation. Let's hear what he had to say. An expanded BRICS will represent a diverse group of nations with different political systems that share a common desire to have a more balanced global order. Our world has become increasingly complex and fractured as it is increasingly polarized and competing with each other. And the Ukraine war will likely be the elephant in the room, with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov filling in for Putin. Both China and South Africa have officially remained neutral on the war, but have each proposed peace plans. But host country South Africa has received a lot of flack for not criticizing the Russian invasion and its perceived bias towards Moscow. But Ramaphosa says it doesn't serve African nations to be drawn into a kind of new Cold War. And before we let you go, I take it that China's President Xi is not just there for the summit, is he? That's right. Possibly most significantly, Chinese President Xi Jinping is also paying an official state visit to South Africa today. It's only his second international trip this year after visiting Russia. 
China is South Africa's biggest trade partner by far and a significant presence in Africa. But South African officials have stressed there is a trade imbalance that needs addressing. There have also been concerns about how China's own economic downturn might affect trade. That's reporter Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. Kate, thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at struggling theater chain AMC's efforts to stay afloat. Shares of the company's stock plummeted yesterday after a judge approved a plan to help it pay down debt. Sunny, breezy, and upper 70s today. Clear skies at around 60 tonight. Sunny again tomorrow and in the mid-70s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Amtrak plans to put new trains in service on routes serving New England. The new trains will be more fuel efficient and have better seats. They'll start to roll onto the track in 2026. They're expected on the Northeast Regional and Downeaster routes. Both of those serve Boston. The U.S. headquarters for a British pharmaceutical company are now in the seaport. Akari Therapeutics opened the new space earlier this month. The company develops drugs to treat a blood condition caused by stem cell transplants. Its CEO tells the Boston Business Journal employees at the Boston Hub include scientists, finance experts, and more. Fairmont Copley Plaza is offering a pet-friendly room service menu for National Dog Day. One menu item includes local cod and caviar. The hotel's chef says the menu for dogs was developed the same way as the one for humans with high-quality food and upscale presentation. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.gov. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Studies show that loneliness and social isolation have major implications for our health. And Massachusetts healthcare providers and insurers are starting to pay more attention to those risks. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey tells us about some programs in the state that are trying to combat loneliness by helping people make friends. The pool is a favorite hangout spot for Jason Silverman and his friend Melissa Mills. They sip slushies, and Silverman climbs the stairs to the water slide. He lands with a big splash. All right. You're 
Silverman has Down syndrome, and talking is difficult, but he has ways of communicating. He smiles, sighs, and sometimes leads Mills by the arm. They meet once a month and go to the gym in Framingham. They always start with the treadmill or bike. You're doing it. A minute and a half left. Then Mills helps Silverman order lunch at a cafe. Cheeseburger. Cheeseburger? Yes. Okay. This relationship started through a program called the Friendship Project. Its goal is to reduce loneliness and social isolation, especially for people with disabilities and mental health conditions who are more likely to feel lonely. And Mills says they hit it off right away. We laugh and um, don't worry about anything when we're together. There's no stress. There's no pressure. We're just here to hang out. For Silverman, the outings are a break from the mornings he spends watching TV alone. His mom, Stephanie Lynch, says he seems happier. It's just human. People need companionship. They need to feel part of something, and I think he really feels part of something when he goes to the gym. The Friendship Project is run by a human services agency called Advocates. Jeff Kielsen is senior vice president. If there's ways that we could really support people by connecting them with others, then we absolutely should do that. There's a financial imperative, too. A growing body of research shows when people are lonely, they're at higher risk of becoming sick with illnesses like heart disease, stroke, and dementia. And Kielsen says it's too early for data, but he hopes the program will reduce some hospital visits. A lot of people, particularly with mental health conditions, use emergency rooms just to connect with people. Advocates is working with some health insurers to expand the initiative beyond people with disabilities and mental health conditions. A recent report from the U.S. Surgeon General underscores the urgency of this work. It says loneliness is a national epidemic and raises the risk of premature death as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Our social networks seem to be shrinking. Daniel Cox is senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His research finds Americans have fewer close friends than they used to. Cox says he's heartened to see more healthcare leaders focus on friendship. If the goal is to help people live longer, healthier lives, this is a pretty obvious intervention. Friendship can take different forms. For Michelle Somerville and Ida Rodriguez, it's a phone call every Tuesday. Here they are on one recent call. I can go anywhere and have this conversation with you. Right now, I'm part of Taco Bell. (laughs) You're at Taco Bell? Oh, my goodness. The pair met through Commonwealth Care Alliance, a Boston-based health insurer for seniors and people with significant medical needs. Rodriguez says her social life slowed down as she got older. The weekly check-ins remind her she has a friend. And Somerville says she likes hearing about the books Rodriguez is reading. I want someone to read to me, but I don't want to read myself. So it was a match made in heaven. The women have never met in person, but they look forward to these weekly chats. And their connection could be good for their health, too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale-McCluskey.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with news of the rare life sentence handed down to a nurse who's being called the worst child serial, serial killer in Britain's history. They'll also look at how AI is helping scientists determine the true age of human organs. It's 849. A hotter planet means an increased risk of intense wildfires. In some states, National Guard troops help combat those fires. In 2021, the National Guard spent 172,000 personnel days fighting fires, compared to about 18,000 in 2019. I'm Elsa Chang, how the National Guard is dealing with the evolving threat of climate change on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Tropical Storm Herald is already bringing torrential rain to South Texas hours before it's expected to make landfall. Former President Trump says he'll turn himself into Georgia authorities on Thursday to face charges that he conspired to overturn the 2020 state election results. And President Biden is pledging to help survivors of Hawaii's wildfires for as long as it takes them to recover. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. Upper 70s and sunny today, and it might be a bit windy. Skies stay clear tonight as temperatures fall to around 60. Tomorrow, mid-70s and sunny. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. When it comes to the stock of some companies, you can get the middle seat back in coach like everyone else, or you can go business class. We'll explain. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, it's not just everyone else's content that fuels generative artificial intelligence. The computer processing for AI requires powerful semiconductor chips. That need for silicon is in turn fueling what's expected to be the biggest launch of a new stock in two years. A microchip company called Arm has just unveiled to investors what they would be buying, the prospectus for its big stock sale. Arm is based in Britain but is owned by the Japan-based conglomerate SoftBank. Arm's initial offering of stock could shape the next leg of the artificial intelligence boom. Marketplace's Henry Epp joins me now. Yeah, David, so ARM has been around for over 30 years, and it designs chips that make all kinds of things run, smartphones, PCs, cars. The company estimates 70% of the world's population uses devices with ARM technology inside them. But it's the potential of AI that could determine the company's future. You might have heard of another AI chip company, NVIDIA. They've been the high-flying tech stock this year thanks to their technology's support of ChatGPT. NVIDIA actually tried to acquire ARM a few years ago but was unsuccessful, And now the CEO of ARM's parent company says he wants to shift to offense mode on AI. 
Mm. And as it happens, NVIDIA will report its quarterly financial results and outlook tomorrow. What are risks for investors trying to buy into this boom? Yeah, well, for ARM, one thing is the sales of smartphones and PCs have really fallen off recently after a big boom early in the pandemic, and ARM's profits have dropped. But the company thinks the market is about to grow again. And then there's the company's sales to China, which made up about a quarter of their revenue last year. ARM notes that U.S. efforts to limit companies' sales of advanced technology in China could impact its business. And there's the fact that just not many companies have been going public. But since ARM's would be the biggest IPO in a while, if it's successful, other companies might follow suit. Marketplace's Henry Epp, thank you very much. Thanks, David. Sticking with chips in the news, a time of higher U.S. and China tariffs and the U.S. banning China's access to some American technology over national security concerns, China has also been thwarting some American tech ambitions. Intel Corporation of California recently scrapped a $5 billion deal to buy an Israeli semiconductor manufacturer, mainly because China seemed to slow walk regulatory approval for its market. Ali Budner has that. Stacy Razgon, a senior analyst at Bernstein Research, says Intel's semiconductor operations are global and multifaceted. They make chips for PCs, you know, the, the processor that's in the PC that's probably in front of you today. And Intel wants to expand. Razgon says Intel tried to buy the Israeli company Tower Semiconductor. But since semiconductors are a global industry, these kinds of business deals have to get regulatory approval from multiple countries. You typically need approval from many jurisdictions globally, the U.S. and Europe and the U.K. and, and other places, and, and particularly China. In a press release, Intel said it didn't get the necessary approvals before the deal expired. Now, Chinese officials didn't reject Intel's acquisition outright, Razgon says. They've just been sitting on it. And sitting on it and sitting on it until eventually the deal died. You only need to fail to get approval in one market, and then it can kind of put the kibosh on the whole acquisition. Willie Shi is professor of management practice at the Harvard Business School. He says in the past, these kinds of deals were usually rubber stamped with no problem. Governments were more friendly to those things. But with complicated geopolitics in the mix these days, he says it's harder. And the relationship between the U.S. and China, especially around high-tech and trade, is volatile. For starters, the U.S. has restricted China's access to semiconductors for national security reasons. China wants to respond, says Martin Chorzempa, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. But they've really struggled to find a good tool and a good way to do it. Torzempa points out that China has generally approved most international deals with no issue. Going forward, though, this might be the kind of leverage the country is looking for. If they want to flex their muscles, they can really make it difficult for transacting parties. And he expects to see China use this kind of roadblock even more going forward. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. Markets Dow futures are up two-tenths percent, S&P futures up half a percent, NASDAQ futures up seven-tenths of a percent. Average 30-year mortgages are up quite a bit this week so far. Mortgage News Daily's average is up at 7.48 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at c3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash why Schwab. 
Got a teachable moment about stocks here. Shares of the movie theater chain AMC lost nearly one quarter of their value, 24% yesterday. A judge had earlier approved a complicated stock maneuver the company wants to do. AMC's trying to consolidate two types of its stock, AMC's plain old common stock and its preferred shares. The theater chain says the move will make the company more resilient after demand for movie tickets plummeted during high pandemic. Marketplace's Justin Ho explains. AMC has been trying to issue stock to raise money and pay down debt, but the company hit a limit on how much common stock it could issue, says Stephen Davidoff Solomon at UC Berkeley. So they hired smart lawyers who figured out a way to work around the issue by issuing out preferred shares. Preferred shares are a lot like normal stocks, but Matthew Spiegel at Yale says they often lock companies into paying out regular dividends, and those dividends aren't tax deductible. So generally, firms don't really like to have a lot of preferred stocks floating around. Now, AMC's plan to convert its preferred shares into more common stock has a lot of investors nervous that the move will basically dilute the stock's value. But Jay Ritter at the University of Florida says the company likely wants to put this unusual stock situation behind them. And just get back to being a normal corporation with common stock outstanding. AMC's CEO said simplifying the stocks it offers will help it raise money more efficiently in the future. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio's The Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Breezy and upper 70s today under sunny skies. Temperatures may dip into the 50s tonight. Tomorrow, mid-70s and sunny again. Clouds move in Thursday for a partly sunny day in the mid-70s. Cloudy and mid-70s on Friday with a good chance of showers. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston and the BBC NewsHour is coming up next. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.